0: well folks this is it we're now down to the last two episodes of our season on haunted new orleans we've spent 17 episodes of our fourth season delving into the dark side of a city that we believe is the most haunted in america It's been season filled with history, mystery, spirits, scandals and sins hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. We hope you're ready for these new episodes as we hunt down the strange and mysterious killer that terrified all of New Orleans with a series of murders that remain unsolved to this day. So turn on all the lights, put some jazz records on the Victrola and discover what happened when the real life boogeyman came to haunted New Orleans. In 1918, New Orleans was becoming a different kind of town. Storyville, the city's first regulated district of vice, had been closed down. The Jim Crow laws had been put into place, regulating where African-Americans could eat, sleep, drink, and even congregate. By closing Storyville and oppressing the black residents of the city, the reformers had also forced jazz music, what some called, quote, musical vice, underground. They wanted to be rid of it altogether. Well, needless to say it didn't work since it went on to be hailed as the first truly American artwork, but they tried. The newspapers didn't approve of it. And judging from the unusually high number of letters sent in after editorials against jazz appeared in the papers, neither did most of the readership. The editor had referred to jazz as, quote, a departure from proper music. Of course, that's what made it great. But not to the city's privileged white elite. They saw jazz, vice, blackness in general, and don't forget the Italians that had been flooding into the city since the late 1800s, as forms of contamination. These things were all part of a New Orleans that found expression in crime, drunkenness, lewdness, and corruption. They were the social ills that reformers had been fighting an uphill battle against in the city for decades. And now, by 1918, it seemed the reformers had won. New Orleans were against vice, like the Great War in Europe appeared to be nearly at an end. The city was poised to become a normal, orderly, Christian place that the reformers wanted it to be. Until, that is, the appearance of a mysterious figure with an axe that would start a frenzy in New Orleans over murder and, of all things, jazz music. It was nothing like the city had seen before or since. That period of terror would last for more than a year. When darkness fell each night, New Orleans residents listened for every sound and nervously watched for every shadow. They opened their newspapers with trembling hands each morning to see who'd been killed next. It seemed that no one in New Orleans was safe. And who knows, perhaps they weren't. On May 23, 1918, a crime occurred. The detectives later told newspapers was, quote, one of the most gruesome in the annals of the New Orleans police. At 5 a.m. that morning, the bodies of Joseph and Catherine Maggio, Italian immigrants who ran a small grocery store were found sprawled across the bedroom and their living quarters behind the store. Both had been savagely attacked while they slept. Joseph was face up on the blood-soaked bed. His skull had been slid open by the ax. Catherine was on the floor at his feet. Her skull had been nearly cut in two by an ax. Each victim's throat had also been cut. Maggio's own blood-smeared straight razor was found on the floor nearby. The axe, as bloody as the razor, was found on the steps going out into the backyard. Murder suspects seemed plentiful. The store was located in the uptown neighborhood, a place of pine board shacks and empty lots. Until recent years, it had been a swamp that now was a neighborhood of mostly Italians, a few other recent immigrants, and a few poor blacks who just couldn't afford to live anywhere else. It was a breeding ground for disease, squalor, and crime. Streetlights were unheard of and even the slightest amount of rain turned the unpaved streets into rivers of muck that made it nearly impossible for the police wagons to travel to the crime scene. But the case well, it turned out to be anything but simple. The intruder had entered the home just before dawn. Using Joe's axe from the shutout back, he had used it to chisel out a panel in the back door and slip inside. He'd entered the kitchen, carried the axe down the short hallway to the bedroom, and used it, along with the razor, to murder the Maggios. It was easy to see how the killer had done it, but why? Robbery would seem to be the simplest motive, but nothing appeared to have been taken from the house. It was true that the grocer's small safe was open and empty, but more than $100 was found hidden underneath Joe's pillow. And on the dresser was a small pile of Catherine's jewelry, including several diamond rings. No thief would have been blind enough to have missed these things. Chief of Detectives George Long, an experienced investigator, came up with the first theory of the crime. His deductions put the blame on Andrew Maggio, Joe's younger brother, who lived in the other half of the grocery building. Andrew had been the one who discovered the bodies after allegedly strange sounds were heard coming from the other side of the wall. He'd gone into Joe and Catherine's bedroom and found Joe half out of bed, but still alive. He called the police at once. Well Andrew was a barber by profession and police found a witness who claimed that several days earlier he'd been seen taking a straight razor home from work to sharpen it. Big deal, he was a barber. But based on this, and a neighbor who was probably the same witness who saw Andrew with the razor, said Andrew had been outside between two and three a.m. that morning. Well, the police, that was enough for them. They detained him for questioning. But there was a curious discovery made later that morning that seemed to exonerate the younger Maggio. Shortly before noon, as officers were canvassing the neighborhood, two detectives stumbled across a clue about a block away from the murder scene. Scrawled on the wooden planks of the sidewalk, they found a crude message written in chalk. The message read, quote, Mrs. Maggio is going to sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony. Well, it seemed such an odd clue until two of the more senior detectives on the squad raised a troubling possibility. They began digging into old files, looking for possible cases that matched the Maggio murders, and to their surprise, discovered that three murders and a number of attacks against Italian grocers had taken place in 1911. The murders bore a striking resemblance to the Maggio crime, and that an axe had been used in each, and access to each home had been gained through a panel in the rear door. These earlier crimes had been thought to be a vendetta of terror organized by the Black Hand, a loosely knit organization of Italian immigrants that New Orleans police commonly called, but not accurately, the Mafia. But the Black Hand had supposedly been eliminated in the city years before. The police had rooted out its members and ended their epidemic of blackmail and murder in the Italian community. By 1918, that was another battle that had seemingly been won. And that made it a lot easier to blame the murder on Andrew Maggio. Even though he was in jail swearing his innocence, he admitted he had been out late celebrating his call to service in the military and had come home drunk. He was a respectable, hardworking man and he insisted he had nothing to do with the murders of his brother and sister in law. Well, he was finally released from jail on May 26th and cleared of all suspicion, but the murders were no closer to being solved. Detectives couldn't help but look more deeply into the crimes that had taken place years before. They assumed the murders were over, but now there was a new pair of murdered Italian grocers to deal with. And the police, well, they began bracing themselves for the worst. And the worst arrived just over a month later. On June 28th, a banker named John Zanka made his morning call to deliver bread and cakes to a grocery store owned by Louis Bessemer. The store was located near Esplanage Ridge, an established densely populated part of town and about four miles from the uptown neighborhood. Strangely, the store was still closed when Zanka arrived. He pounded on the door, but when he got no answer, he went to a side door that led to the residence behind the grocery, where Bessemer lived with his wife, Annie Harriet Bessemer. He started to knock on the door, but then he stopped when he saw that the lower panel of the door had been carefully chiseled out. Zanka tried to open the door, but it was locked. Then, moments later, he heard a voice inside. The door opened and Louis Bessemer stumbled into the doorway. He weaved back and forth unsteadily with a damp sponge held to his face. Blood was streaming from a deep wound over his right eye. Well, stunned, Zanka asked him what had happened, but Bessemer said that he wasn't sure. He'd been attacked in the night, but he didn't think it was anything to worry about. (laughs) Really? But Zanka pushed past him to find the telephone. He... Garley felt the same way I do. Bessemer tried to stop him, telling him he didn't want him to call the police or an ambulance. He'd go to see his own doctor. But Zanka telephoned the police anyway, telling an officer at the 5th Precinct Station, quote, there's been a murder or something here. When the police arrived, they entered what turned out to be a blood-drenched apartment. In the first bedroom, a sheetless bed with blood-stained pillows was found, surrounded by clothing and other objects. This was apparently where Bessemer was attacked. But in the back bedroom, under a soaked sheet, they found Annie Bessemer, unconscious and bloody, but alive. She had a gaping wound over her left ear and on the top of her head. A smudged trail of bloody handprints let out of the room, down a hall, and into a screened-in porch that faced the backyard. On the porch, the police found a thick lock of hair sitting in a pool of blood. And leaning against the wall was a broken axe. The police believed that Annie had been attacked on the porch, perhaps sleeping there because of the heat and that she'd been dragged or carried to the bed, possibly by her husband. The pair was immediately taken to Charity Hospital, where detectives fearing that one or both might die, rushed to question them. Louis Bessemer was conscious, but dazed. He claimed to remember nothing of the attack or anything that had occurred the previous night. The first thing he could recall was waking up and finding his wife in bed covered in blood. He put a sheet on her, he remembered. He also recalled getting a wet sponge for his head and hearing John Zanka knocking on the door. The first suspicion shared by detectives was that Besmer had attacked his wife, and perhaps had injured himself in the struggle. They believed this would explain why he didn't want Zanka to call an ambulance or the police. When Annie woke up, though, she immediately denied that there had been an argument with her husband. But She couldn't remember anything else. Well, over the next few hours, Lewis became more talkative. And for a man who'd just been attacked with an ax a few hours before, kind of a jerk. He bragged about how rich and successful he was. He told detectives that he was a Polish Jew who spoke many languages and was only running his grocery store as a hobby. He said that his doctor had recommended it as a change of pace to help him recover from a lifetime of overwork. He and his younger wife got along quite well, he said. He'd met her two years before in Fort Lauderdale, and they'd moved to New Orleans for a rest. Well, a detective asked him if he had any enemies or ruthless business competitors, and Bessemer said yes, some Italian grocers. He'd been undercutting them on prices. Well, detectives made a note of this, but didn't pursue the line of questioning any further. Well, not then at least. Eventually, Annie became more lucid too. When asked if she remembered being attacked on the porch, she paused for a moment and then said she thought she did. She also remembered finding someone inside of the grocery store early that morning. It was a mulatto man, she said, who asked her for a package of tobacco. When she told the man they didn't sell tobacco, he chased her. He followed her back through the store, across the hall to the residence, and out to the screen porch where he'd struck her with an ax. Well, that was all she could remember. Of course, this all turned out to be a fantasy, but at the moment, the police had something tangible to work with. By afternoon, officers had a suspect in custody. His name was Louis Aubuchon, a light-skinned black man who had done a few odd jobs for the Bessemers earlier in the week. Found at his mother's home near the store, he was asked about his whereabouts that morning. He claimed he'd been at the Poitras market since 1 a.m., but when witnesses denied this, he admitted he'd lied, but was evasive about why while he was arrested and taken to the station. Even so, detectives were doubtful about Annie's story. Why was she working in the grocery store in her nightgown? Why didn't she call for help when she was being chased through the store by an axe-wielding maniac? And why did no other merchant on the street see or hear anything, since most of them were already open for the day? When asked all these questions, Annie became confused. She admitted that no black man had attacked her. Quote, if I'd said so before, I didn't know what I was saying, she told detectives. What a mess. Detectives were now faced with telling their supervisors they were going to have to release another suspect, just like Andrew Maggio, with no one to take his place. Police Superintendent Frank Mooney decided to keep it reporters away from the victims until they could make progress in the case. But of course, this only caused wild speculation in the press. Well, by the weekend, the case had taken another bizarre turn. Annie had started to insinuate that it might have been her husband who'd attacked her, and worse, he might be a German spy. He was a German, she told police. He claimed he wasn't, but he was. And she added she had no idea where he'd gotten the money to buy his store. Well, with the United States still at war with Germany, the authorities took her claims at least somewhat seriously. Bessemer had admitted being an immigrant, and he spoke a number of languages, including German. And when the police discovered several suitcases in the Bessemer home filled with hundreds of letters and pamphlets in Russian, Yiddish and German, the press went crazy. Stories were soon circulating about hidden code books, suspiciously expensive clothing and a footlocker with a hidden compartment. Annie, many claimed, must have discovered her husband's secret and he tried to kill her. While agents from the Department of Justice came to question, Bessemer and Superintendent Moody was almost ready to turn the case over to them, but he hesitated. He was convinced the attack had nothing to do with spies. He believed it was connected to the Maggio case and that the same killer was at work. And he wasn't afraid to say this to the newspapers either. The fact that Bessemer was not an Italian didn't faze him. Bessemer had admitted that his business practices had upset his Italian competitors connecting the cases. And a neighbor had once warned the grocer that his rivals might quote, burn him down because he was underselling them. Well, he was also interested by something that Annie said. She'd started to get some of her memory back and she was questioned again. This time she didn't mention anything about her husband being a German spy. Instead, she recalled on the evening before the attack, she had warned her husband about counting money in the safe with the door to the grocery store open. When he didn't say anything to her, she went back to the screen porch to rest And that was all she remembered. Had the killer seen Bessemer counting the money? No one knew. Well, a week after the attacks, Louis Bessemer was deemed healthy enough to leave the hospital. He was taken to police headquarters where he spent three hours talking to Superintendent Mooney, detectives, and federal agents. They were unsure of how to proceed with the case. There was not enough evidence to hold Bessemer in custody. Possessing letters written in German was no crime, even in wartime. And while it was suspicious for a man who was as well-traveled, well-educated and wealthy as Bessemer claimed to be, was running a little grocery store in New Orleans. Well, that wasn't illegal either. Just weird. Bessemer was released, but the police planned to keep an eye on him. Annie was questioned further and she revealed that her husband had read about the Maggio cases in the newspaper. But again, that didn't prove anything. It was possible he'd tried to kill his wife and then wounded himself to throw off suspicions, but that also seemed to stretch. The wound to Lewis's head was serious enough to make that doubtful. While the case was going nowhere, even though Superintendent Mooney was quick to tell the press, quote, we are making progress and I feel sure that before we are through, the mystery will have been solved. Well, it wasn't solved. And then on July 7th, something happened that changed the case. After 11 days of confusion, Annie suddenly got her memory back. She now said she'd been awakened around dawn by a man standing over her bed. She said that she told him to go away, but he made strange gestures that she couldn't understand and then hit her with an ax. She described the man as tall, heavy set, and white with dark hair. He was wearing a very dirty white shirt. The next thing she remembered was waking up on the screened porch in a pool of blood. She then recalled seeing a man's feet wearing black, heavy, laced up shoes like a laborer would wear. After that, Well, nothing until the hospital. Detectives weren't sure how to take this story. It might be just another of Annie's wild tales. Reporters, though, they knew just the story they wanted to print. It was the same killer that attacked the Maggios, he was real, and he was loose in the city. Things were quiet until the night of August 5th. A woman named Kate Gonzalez was startled out of her sleep with the sound of a woman's scream. When she bolted up from her bed, she heard another scream followed the sound of a scuffle and breaking glass. The sound was coming from next door, the other half of their duplex on Elmira Street. That was where Kate's sister, Mary Schneider, lived with her husband and three young children. Kate knew that Mary was alone because her husband, Edward, worked the late shift. Well, Kate shook her husband awake and they rushed out into the street. Other neighbors, having heard the sounds, had started to gather and were standing there staring at the front door of the Schneider side of the house because it was standing wide open. Kate, her husband, and several neighbors entered the dark house. Inside, they found Mary, nine months pregnant, sprawled across the bed in a state of semi-consciousness. There were bloody gashes on her head and face and several of her teeth had been knocked out. They were lying in small pools of blood, which mixed with lamp oil on top of the bed sheets. The shattered lamp had been the source for the breaking glass that Kate had heard through the walls. Mary managed to say something about being attacked by a tall, heavy-set man, but then fainted before she could say anything else. The police and an ambulance were called, and Mary was rushed to Charity Hospital and sent directly to the maternity ward in case she went into labor. Toward morning, Edward Schneider returned home from his job at the Southern Pacific Docks to found his house in an uproar. He was asked by detectives to check to see if anything inside was missing. Well, a wardrobe in the bedroom had been broken open and six or seven dollars was missing from a top shelf. However, a small box that contained $102 of Edward's back pay had been sitting in plain sight and it was untouched. The police didn't immediately link the attack to the two earlier crimes, but the press did and were already asking questions. Detectives made the connection later that morning when they found a discarded hatchet in a yard near the cottage. Worse, when Edward checked his backyard shed to see if anything was missing from there, he found one object had disappeared, his axe. Superintendent Mooney was forced to say he wasn't sure that it had been the axe man who struck Mary, but that the quote, finding of the hatchet and the disappearing of the axe is puzzling. Well, this was the first time that Mooney had referred to the perpetrator as the Axeman. It wouldn't be the last. Mooney didn't tell the press that his men had also found an earlier crime that matched the recent ones. In December 1917, six months before the Imaggio attack, a sleeping Italian grocer named Epifina Andalina had been attacked by a hatchet wielding man. The grocer survived and the story hadn't made the papers at the time, which is the reason why most people don't consider it when they talk about the first attack by the Axeman. Well, the resemblance to the other attacks was eerie though because there'd been a panel chiseled out of the back door, a lack of fingerprints, nothing was stolen and the discarded weapon was found in a neighboring yard. It's probably why Mooney used the name, the Axeman. He already knew they had a repeat killer on their hands. Luckily for Mary Schneider, her wounds turned out to be minor, and she successfully gave birth to a baby girl on the day after the attack. She had little memory of the incident. Well, in the meantime, the police investigation was a mess. Detectives told reporters they believed all the attacks were separate, while the chief and other police officials believed they were hunting a serial axe murderer. This is an indication as to how disorganized and disordered the investigation was going to become. And likely, the very reason why the murders and attacks were never solved. But for now, no matter what some detectives believed, the people of New Orleans seemed to believe the Axeman was real. Stories appeared in newspapers that reported on all-night vigils being kept by shotgun-toting fathers, watching over their sleeping families. A few stories linked murders that went back as far as 1910 to the quote, insane beast that was now stalking his prey in the city. If a man who had not been caught killing people eight years before was active again, it seemed New Orleans had a reason to panic. Then, during the early morning hours of August 10th, two teenage girls, Pauline and Mary Bruno, were awakened by the sound of strange noises coming from the bedroom next to theirs. They lived in a residence in the back of their mother's grocery store. Pauline later told the police, quote, I couldn't sleep well last night. I haven't slept well in a long time. Well, after that, she was awakened. She looked up and there at the end of her bed was a big, heavy set man. Pauline added, quote, I screamed. My little sister screamed. We were horribly scared and then he ran. The figure, which she thought was a white man, but wasn't sure, disappeared. She said, quote, almost as if he had wings. Well, their uncle, Joseph Romano, had been sleeping in the next room. A moment later, he stumbled into the doorway of the girl's bedroom holding his head with bloody hands. I've been hit, he said, call an ambulance. Then he fell into a chair and passed out. He died two days later at Charity Hospital. Well detectives on the scene tried to piece together what happened. The intruder with an axe taken from the backyard shed had entered the house through a broken slat in the kitchen window. He'd apparently gathered Joe Romano's clothing from his room and carried it into the kitchen. He found his wallet in his pants and apparently took that with him. Then he returned to the bedroom and struck Romano several times with the ax, fracturing his skull. He may have planned to attack the girls next, but their screams possibly forced him to flee, dropping the ax in the backyard as he ran. Once again, robbery didn't seem to be the motive. Yes, he had taken Romano's wallet, just as he had taken other small things from other homes, but he left behind Romano's gold watch and a diamond ring, which had been on his dresser in plain sight. No fingerprints and no clues had been left behind. Superintendent Mooney assured the public that the police were going to get the, quote, axe-wielding degenerate. Take this as gospel, he said in a statement. We're going to get him yet. I'm doing everything in my power to run down this murderous maniac. But the public really wasn't reassured. They wondered who was next. As one newspaper put it, quote, A literal reign of terror has swept through many quarters in New Orleans, In some Italian households, members of the family divide the night into regular watches and stand guard over their sleeping kin, armed with buckshot loaded shotguns. A kind of hysteria seemed to grip the city as reports of alleged Axeman sightings came in from all over town. People called the police to report unfamiliar axes found in their backyards, or missing hatchets, or panels that had been chiseled out from doors. Everyone seemed to have a theory about the killer's identity too. The suspect always seemed to be a member of groups that have been targeted by reformers for years, like a mafia hitman, a member of the black hand, or another member of the Italian underworld targeting grocers, or perhaps he was a violent black man like Robert Charles, who had killed several policemen back in 1900. Others perhaps impressed by Pauline Bruno's statement that the axeman disappeared like he had wings believed that he might be a supernatural being of some sort. Well, strangely, It would be the Axeman himself who would soon claim to be a supernatural being, an actual demon from the hottest hell who demanded one thing in return from the mortals of New Orleans in exchange for sparing their lives. Jazz music. We'll be back in our next episode for the conclusion of the Axeman story and the conclusion to our fourth season of Haunted New Orleans. So stay safe and we'll see you then.
1: Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, yo weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30 year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine-to-five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where
0: do words come from?
1: Hey, no, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do
0: we? How... There's one thing that the American Hauntings podcast knows about, and that's mothers. We featured a lot of great mothers in a lot of our episodes. Pearl Curran, Julia Lemp, Sarah Moore, Marie Laveau, Jane Mansfield, Tamsin Donner, Delphine LaLaurie, Belle Gunness... Okay, maybe leave out those last two. But what I'm saying is that with Mother's Day coming soon, you need a truly special gift for your mom because, well, she's not Belle Gunness. So let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that literally turns your mom's life story into a book. So here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your mom a question in her email the same way she sends you questions about your dating life or when you plan to give her grandkids. Anyway, these can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you want to ask. She replies by either typing in the answers or by recording her own voice. Then mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a keepsake book and they can create an audiobook that uses her voice recordings, preserving her voice and her stories forever as anyone who doesn't have their mom around anymore can tell you having your mother's stories about growing up being a kid and overcoming life's challenges will be something that you and your kids will treasure and let's be honest your mom has given you a lifetime of stories this is your chance to give her a very cool way to share them honestly i decided to try this out for myself and i sent it to my mom and she's not exactly a whiz at computers but she still found it really easy to use My mom might have had a little more unusual childhood than a lot of mothers do, so I'm really glad to have this. And I think you'll be glad to give one to your mother too. So check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code hauntings at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code hauntings for 10% off today. Not not this part, not your oh, part. Oh yeah. At the very yeah. beginning, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't go through all that shit. I just said, "Well, this is it. I know. Yeah, it's <laughs> <Almost I>, done."
1: <laughs> well, I I actually thought that when I was first editing it, I thought that I fucked something up and cut out part of it because I was like, "Wait, that's nope. not how he starts." That was huh? it. Yeah. Yes, I like it. Um. Okay. We're ready. I'm ready. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now nearing the end of season four of the podcast Mm -hmm. Haunted New Orleans. This is pretty much the end. This is pretty much the end. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and that other voice you hear is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Yep, we're here. We are here.
0: We have one more episode after this. Is it really so only one? It, it really is. Okay. I'm not kidding. So, All right. I told you I didn't know if it would be, last time I told you I didn't know if it'd be one or two mm-hmm. or three, yes. but I decided that we would do it in two. Okay. So. All yeah. right. Do you How how
1: many episodes do you think you could have stretched this out if you
0: wanted oh, to? Oh, gosh. I mean, there was other stuff that I could have included, but it was starting to get um, too much, too much crime, not enough ghosts. Okay. So um, people just have to wait for the book. Because uh, yeah. I'm going to update that. I think I don't. I didn't tell you about that. No, I? you did not. I announced it last last night. We're recording this on the 18th, but yep. uh, I re- announced it last night on a live stream that I am. A lot of people have been asking me about putting uh, like Haunted New Orleans and Wicked New Orleans into one book. Oh yeah, and. Um, I won't. I won't do it exactly how it is, uh, but I'm going to update everything and include a lot more stories than what I have now mm-hmm. uh, in in both books, and put that out as a single book called Satan's Carnival. No shit. Uh, and you know, with a subtitle about New Orleans. Right. 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 And um, that was after. You know, it's kind of an inside joke. All of my friends know what that means. Um, the 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 title. Someone had sent me a message about. I guess I posted something on Facebook about our events and someone had sent me a message and rebuked me in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, for luring people into my carnival of Satan. Oh, and I so like I liked it so much. I decided it needed to be a book title. I think one of my friends suggested that. Yeah. So I changed it slightly and I'm going to use it for my, uh, new, my new New Orleans book when it comes out, probably that's, within the next year. That's amazing. So Yeah. I might have to make that a shirt. Sometimes. I know, right? Once, it, <laughs> yeah, when the book comes out, we'll have to make it a shirt. We do. We should do a boneyard shirt because yeah. that book is sold like crazy. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, I, the which later. I've been really glad. I mean, I I've done a lot of stuff during the quarantine, and because uh, gave, it just gave me. Tons of free time to write because mm-hmm. as we're recording this, this is tonight is going to be the first public event I've done since the middle of March. Are you, you think you're going to be uh, rusty? So no, I don't think so because I've been doing the live streams. And stuff. Uh, so true. it's it's kept me uh it's Sharp. kept me going. Yeah, and and it's been a lot of fun, and it's been a nice way to interact with people that we wouldn't have gotten to do that otherwise. Right. Obviously, so and now we've also set up. Now we turn that into a system where. Um, a lot of people can sort of attend the events that don't live in the area, because mm-hmm. uh, we've had a lot. I mean, we have a lot of a lot of people who Opened are yeah, who are, are, are into the stuff that are that follow the website and stuff that are all over the country, and now they can kind of attend the events too. Because I mean, I've been doing several already, but I mean, I've got one on Lizzie Borden on the 31st, and mm-hmm. that's been one that's been popular as a evening with dinner thing. And then I'm doing one, um, on the missing and unsolved disappearances. Uh, and I'm doing one on haunted Hollywood and I'm doing one on Abraham Lincoln. Those are both in September. Um, so, I mean, if you're, if people are interested, you can go to Americanhauntings.net. but Um, That's been a lot of fun, and Mm -hmm. it's really been nice. It's kind of like the podcast, except more interactive. It's people who can get involved in what we're doing from far away, and we can actually... Um, with these live streams, we can talk back to them at the same time. Right. In which real is time. Pretty, pretty cool. So um yeah. Anyway, so tonight's the first one back. I lost my train of thought. No, it's cool. So <laughs> so can you can you
1: tell people that might be concerned? How, how are we changing things up for
0: these well, new events? We stuff? have changed things up because we've moved the event to the best western premiere. Uh, we have a closed-off room. Uh, we, we're doing it at the Mineral Springs, but um there's not enough room for social distancing there mm-hmm. and um you know they don't have a real kitchen you know it's kind of just bring the stuff and serve it which was all fine and good you know till shit t- hit the fan in the before times God damn it. Yes. Yeah, it was all fine and good yes. but now um things are different we have to be a little bit more careful so we have a uh, a you know a more sanitized area we've got more social distancing the food is right here it's on site there's no off site catering involved and uh it gives us um and actually this time of year i was at the mineral space today and as dave and donna at it's raining zen will tell you it's hot there. i bet so it's gonna be nice and cool here and um it's gonna be nice and so we're you we know everybody has to adjust we all have to adjust and look out for each other um that's what's something we've been pushing since march is looking out for each other and uh, our together in spirit thing—that's why we did those shirts—and yep. we're working on a new one. Um, okay, because we, you know it's it's getting closer to the fall, and it's time for a, another together in spirit shirt. Although we're actually being able to get together a little bit more than we used to, uh, as long as we're careful, you know. And yep. we are—we have ramped things up uh, as far as caution and safety and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, same way with the walking tours and things—we're, you know, a little hesitant on some in some of our locations about some of the tours, but like in Alton, you know, um, we've got plenty of room to social distance. We've cut down the number of people on the tours Mm -hmm. and... Gives people a chance to get out of the house, man. Yeah, right, right. Um, and then I think that is desperately needed for all of us, really. Yep. So, yeah, I've seen some of the things uh, y'all are posting, and yeah, you need to get
1: out of the house a little bit more. Yeah. Come, come, hang <laughs> yeah, out,
0: really, and let's
1: socialize. Yeah, you,
0: you need some social contact. <laughs> right. Trust me. Right. Um, oh, anyway, the Boneyard book—that's oh, what yeah. we were talking yeah, ta- about. We should do a T-shirt on that. Yeah, kind of, some kind of cool graveyard. I'm, thing. I'm curious. But yeah, the book has done really, really well, and I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful to everybody and mm-hmm. thankful for how much interest they've taken in it. And, um, you know, we, uh, we've been doing, uh, we, we have to, to get this book out the way that we wanted to, we're actually, we're using two different printers. Yeah. One's a lot faster than the other. And, uh, the books are the same. You can't tell the difference, but sure. in such a way that it's kind of encouraged me to use more with this other faster printer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's enabled us to get the books out on time and get them in people's hands. Right. So it's, you know, some things are slowed down. The supply lines are tough in yeah. some things. And, you know, we were doing really great at the beginning of all this with the speed and then things kind of bogged down. Yeah. But so we just found another way. We yep. just kept working at it. That, and I guess that's kind of what I was trying to say is that we've all adjusted to this stuff. Sure. And we're still adjusting. And uh, it's been really great. People have been patient with us and have really worked with us to make those adjustments. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we've got We really have a great bunch of people. I mean, you know, the squeaky wheel always gets the grease. Sure. You know? So you've always got those handful of people who just won't get it through their head that, you know, no matter what's happening, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. So right, right. things are going to be weird. And, you know, we just, we live with the weird. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're used to, <laughs> yeah, we're weird. used to being weird right. and adapting to weird. So, right. you know, it's, um, it, I think it's been easier for people like us than it has been for Joe Blow off the street. Sure. I, I really do think so because right. most of us are antisocial anyway. I yeah. know, I am. I, I don't, you know, I'm okay with not spending lots of time one on one with people. I, <laughs> right, you know, right. I was great at the beginning of this thing, and, you know, I enjoy, you know, people, but at, at a six foot distance, awesome. I know. <laughs> you know right. So, no, nah, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, we have I great people, but. I think that a lot of people like us have adjusted to this better yep. than other people have.
1: Yeah, and I think so. a lot of our people, too, um, like people have been ordering shirts from AmericanHauntingsClothing.com, and um, yeah. that was held up for a while. And I'm, assuming, I'm assuming because the warehouse probably didn't have probably. people going in there. We, we do fulfillment out of South Carolina, I think. And almost everybody was very understanding yeah. and cool. Yeah. And, you know, thanks for being patient with that. But, yeah, we're just we're rolling with the punches just like anybody else. And yeah. I
0: try to wear my morbid, curious shirt as often as I can. Yes, so I, I love it. I try to wear it... When When I'm doing... um Talks and things online. So yes. people always ask me where to get it, and then I tell them just go to our clothing store. Cody will get it for you. I've now. been I've been wearing it's a great shirt. I, I love it. And ye-
1: yesterday I was wearing uh, the shirt that I got from the Museum of Death in New Orleans over oh, yeah, we yeah, there. Yeah. And yeah. it's like um, it's Ed Gein on the front, and it's like a tarot card looking thing. But the mm, back, uh-huh. it ju- but the back it says uh, Death is everywhere. It's like D I E, and I always forget that the, my back of my shirt just says <laughs> die. die. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I just wear it out like what? I'm not even not even thinking about yeah. it. But yeah. um, something. I, I did tell you about this I think but we recently crossed 800,000 downloads cool. and 800 iTunes reviews and yeah I'm, I'm gonna pat us on the back a little bit yeah. because just think about it, dude when we started this shit like I <laughs> no. thought okay if we got like eight Listens, I'd I know. Be like, That's Every time amazing. somebody
0: says, "Oh man, I love the podcast," I start at the beginning. I always go, "I uh, promise yeah. it gets better." <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Every time, it, I never fail. Well, to we have that. the unique
1: position <laughs> where it sounded great in the beginning, but we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. And then we started to know what we were doing, but the sound quality <laughs> oh, went down so bad. And then it's kind of like fluctuated through there. But I
0: feel like it's we're gotten better. Gonna, you know, it's we finally much... gotten a little better, except for that one episode a couple of weeks ago. But other than that, it's uh, not bad, when shit so. hit the fan, because it, it's all because of this white yeah. piece, right? Yeah, I know see I fucking see it dongle. yeah you got this new laptop and we thought man this is gonna be great I know this new Apple laptop and then we forget that you know there's so many I things think... that an Apple needs yeah, so to this... do things and so we didn't have it and we tried to do it on we the we tried phones to work and, it around yeah. the best way we could and yeah. it yeah thanks it was, for sticking with yeah, us yeah we but... appreciate it you guys but y- it was a little rough you know it oh, was man.
1: but we'll, let's dive into some positive feedback about the show real quick we have a couple uh, listener reviews that I wanted to, to mention So this first one is from uh, May... Magically, I I don't know. You always try. I to know. Get, I don't know why you do. <laughs> I know. That uh, it's titled "Amazing and Informative." Uh, such a, such a good podcast, especially if you're a history buff like me. I love the dynamic between the hosts and their humor. I enjoy the historical aspect and the paranormal side of the show. Thank you. That that's just that summed it real, right yeah. up right there. I appreciate it. Uh, this next one's from Ashwee, 1983. It says "Best Ever." I love this podcast. Keeps me occupied at work, but gives me knowledge at the same time. I love stories, especially the New Orleans ones. Keep up the amazing work, guys. Well, thank you very much much um two more real quick this one this the name is the Roadrunner person man um, it's this titled pleasantly surprised that <laughs> so just started listening on a recommendation I'm a parent uh, I'm on a paranormal team as a senior investigator in Rochester Minnesota I was afraid of listening because every group has different beliefs big example is orbs but I had a four-hour <laughs> drive um, along to WI Wisconsin I guess yeah and, and decided to try it out uh, oh my goodness so happy I checked it out your beliefs on investigations proof history debunking orbs, ETC are 99% the same as us the biggest thing that surprised me about ghost hunting was loving the history part of it love how this combines with the legend stories and debunking currently on season two episode five thank you can't wait to continue listening that's awesome um and then this last one is from stitched panda don't know what that is but uh it's titled love the show being a local Alton resident and having read the majority of Troy Taylor's books, the majority, that's a lot. Oh, that's a lot. That's a lot of books, so thank you. Uh, I'm so surprised that I hadn't Three heard of the podcast. during the
0: quarantine. Right?
1: <laughs> I'm so surprised I hadn't heard of the podcast sooner. I just happened to catch it uh, on the schedule for the Together in Spirit event, and the last several days i oh, have been cool. fully engrossed in listening to the history of the spooky spooky small town. It's like an audiobook of Haunted Alton. Still have my first edition copy of it from 2000. Uh, the Hartford Castle, or Lakeview Castle, was by far my favorite episode because I remember my uncle telling me a story once about him and his buddies getting completely smashed and trying to steal <laughs> one of the stone mastiffs on the property in the early 70s. Keep up the great uh, job, and I look forward to catching up and learning more haunted histories. That's awesome. And that's when I tell people about. Um, when I tell people about the podcast and like why I started it, I always use the same example, but I say I was driving by the McPike mansion one day and I realized I have more stories about trying to break into the McPike mansion (laughs) than I do about why is this even haunted, you know? And so that's why the history aspect really spoke to me. So I love when people tell me, you know, crazy stories about, Oh, you know, I didn't know this about this place, but here's a fun story for you about, you know, mineral or whatever. And yeah, so I, I
0: love that stuff. So thank you for the reviews. Um, keep keep leaving them. I'll read the, my yeah, favorites. We, on we there. always appreciate the reviews, um, even the ones that sometimes just don't get the show. Yes. Yeah. Or are just mean. But everybody I, I've noticed that everyone gets those. But yeah, um, like the people who, you know, some guy was mad because I interrupt Cody. Hey, that's kind of our thing. It is our <laughs> I mean, thing. That, that's the th- that's what we do. Um, mad because I talked over Cody in the end of the podcast. Well, that's but we just do that. I know. But and then there was one that complained that you know they listened to the. Velisca season, and then bought the book, and were mad because I just read the book. Okay, trust me. If I had just read the book, we'd still be in <laughs> we, that season. Yes, we'd still um, be on that. That was not too. me reading the book, but but speaking of that though, um, I don't think I even told you. Oh my god, um, I find out so much. I know. Stuff live I remember to tell you this stuff, but I actually have an audio book out now. No, did shit. I tell you that? No. Yeah, it's um the Lizzie Borden book. One August morning is available in Audible and. A I did not read it. What so if? for all of you who think that I sound like um, Steve Carell on Adderall, um, <laughs> I <laughs> I did not do the reading. A guy named Charles Huddleston did, and uh-huh. he's amazing. Yeah, I mean he's so great. Uh, but yeah, it's available in Audible, and he's going to do some more. So I'll finally have some audiobooks. Wow. People ask all the time, and this is my my first completed. How, how do you so, feel about that I, I feel oh it's I, great it's I, would, I wasn't gonna do it you know I wasn't well, gonna do I, but it but so. I would think because okay I'm, I would I? never get through it you listen well, to the yes, things I read and you would have, have to clean up all the stuff but I just, and I would it, it would take so much time I feel like with, with you and
1: your personality though I feel like you wouldn't want to give that up to somebody else I feel like you'd oh, want that oh man no no
0: you no? you gotta hear him do it yeah I mean okay. it's, it's that awesome I good? I, yeah we could play a snippet from it but I because I own the rights to it maybe in our next episode so I can put we'll, one in we'll right here. Put if you a want. piece. Yeah. Um, if you want to stick something in there, okay. uh, put it right here. Okay. That was great. I'm so, so that's happy you, I heard it now. Do you now see I what understand. I mean about now his I understand. voice? Yes, now I mean, I get he really it. does a really cool performance of it. I mean, that's his job. Yeah. That's what he does. And he came to me and uh, I listened to his samples uh-huh. and I'm like, oh, dude. <laughs> this got is that perfect. voice, huh? This okay. is perfect. So. Anyway, but there's there's gonna be more coming. He's gonna do some more. He said so, but he's you know busy. He's got other projects too. Uh, but so if you've been looking for one of my audiobooks, that's what's available now. It's one August morning, and it's in the Audible store. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, we'll have to check
1: that out. All right. Are you ready to I'm, dive I'm ready. in? Yes. yes. All right. Let's. Okay. Set the scene here. Nineteen eighteen. Yes. Storyville is closed down. Jim law uh, Jim Crow laws have been in place. And people essentially want jazz music just shut down well, like that altogether, yeah. right? The
0: reformers have been trying to crack down on New Orleans for years. I mean, as we know, it never works. Sure. Um, and, <laughs> right. you know, we, we can look past 1918, past these stories and know that um, if any of those people who were social reformers then walked down Bourbon Street today, they would, they would pass out. They would faint. Yes. You know, so... People have always wanted to shut this stuff down. I mean, that's why Storyville existed in the first place. Is because there were, you know, brothels and things all over the city and music clubs, and so they wanted to put it all in one space. Right. Right. And they wanted to make sure that. You know, it wasn't spread through the rest of the city, Keep but the riffraff. And out. really, it wasn't. It wasn't even the reformers, while they didn't want it in the first place. Sure. it wasn't the city government that closed Storyville. It was the United States government because it was too close to the naval base. Right, right, right. And so that's why it got shut down. And um, but they were thrilled to find it gone. You know, you know, uh, black people put in their place. You know, they couldn't go here. They couldn't go there. Right. And uh, jazz music, which was, you know, the the worst of of all of these things, they had to get all of this stuff contained, yep. and so they really felt like they were they were winning yep. at this yep. point. Yeah, a bunch of white so people getting they upset. were making New Orleans great again, yes. as far as they were concerned.
1: Oh my gosh, that's a phrase somebody should use. That anyway, yeah. uh, the city was poised to become a normal, orderly Christian place that reformers wanted it to be. But no, then shit hits the fan. So let's go to May 23rd, 1918. The bodies of Joseph and Catherine Maggio, yes. friends that right, were found sprawled across the uh, their bedroom. Both of their skulls have been crushed and their throats were slit. Uh, they'd lived in a not great neighborhood and um, a panel had been carved in their door out in their door essentially to get in. The motive is not robbery because there's stuff left out that somebody would take.
0: But here's the thing. Yeah. Um, and this becomes more apparent as more murders take place, but we might as well talk about it sure. as we go. Uh, for whatever reason, this killer takes something. Yeah, right. You like know, a it's souvenir trophy. like a trophy, right, like a trophy um, of some sort, you know, whether it's four or five dollars or it's Joe Romano's wallet yeah. or it's always some little thing that probably would not have been missed except for the fact that there were survivors in many right, of the cases, and right. they realized... Things were gone, right? Uh, But but, he leaves a bunch of money, but he leaves the money and jewelry and all this stuff behind. Yeah. So robbery obviously isn't the motive.
1: Sure. Right. Yeah. But yeah, we still have guy collecting souvenirs and trophies and things. So chief of detectives George Long develops a theory that uh, the brother uh, Andrew Maggio was to blame, Uh, but then later that that falls apart. But later that morning, a block away, they find a note in chalk, and it says, "Missus Maggio is going to sit up tonight, just like Missus Tony," and that strikes a chord with people the police start digging in they find similar murders from 1911 uh, that they initially thought had been done by the black hand and andrews eventually released so this is interesting to me because like i feel like okay killers now will leave a calling card or something behind or see themselves in the news and all this but this guy probably i don't know you, you leave something a couple blocks away you have to wait a few days to see if it pops in the paper
0: right or well, if they even catch you know on. and then we're looking at this you know, a hundred years in the sure. future. We're looking at it in hindsight. And, you know, my guess would be if I had to really dig into this and we're, we're, we're presenting this, um, kind of as it happens in 1918. Yeah. As it turns out later, we discovered there was actually a murder that happened in December of, of 1917. Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably the same killer. Yeah. And that's something that in some of the things I've written about this, I go into more detail, but I'm trying to keep this so that our story moves forward. Right, right, right. There's a good chance this guy was the same one who was committing these murders and these attacks on Italian grocers back in 19, 1911, So seven
1: years prior, so, but
0: we've, you know, we've got a seven, eight year gap here. And what was he
1: doing? You think?
0: it's hard to say. Um, You know, I, I've dug into that and that's why I thought we might go three episodes of this instead of two Mm -hmm. is because I thought about getting into those early ones, but um, it's 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 one of those things where you you can pile on too much sure. for a podcast, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we were doing a whole podcast on the Axemen in New Orleans, we'd want to get into every single thing and every you know every bit of Italian prejudice and and kidnappings and sure. uh, mobsters and, black and the mafia and, yeah. and the black hand everything combined in this. But um, that's why I thought, well, we could I'd refer to it and we could talk about it a little bit yeah, more yeah. without getting into the minutia. But my guess is that he did commit those same murders and there may have been more of a reason behind it it's hard to say it's you know the, the coverage in 1911 was so sparse kind of like the 1917 attacks yeah yeah were so sparse that it's really hard to build too much but the 1911 murders were pretty close and a uh, uh, mrs tony her husband was one of the victims mm-hmm and my guess is he was trying to point to the police because as we'll find out this guy did love to uh like a Jack the Ripper type killer love to get attention from the police or something. right yes. exactly and so he probably wanted things tied together and during that time he was probably either in jail right or as out of some have suggested you know traveling somewhere or he could have been in an insane asylum too, because you got sent away for that for a lot more reasons back sure. then than you do today. But you know, we could probably, you know, we could probably tie this into some other murders that have taken place. I was wondering. I would not, because yeah. these are completely different types of murders. The mm-hmm. the M O in these murders are all the same. Yeah. Um, and as they are with the um, the the murders I wrote about, with the the murders, the sac- church of sacrifice murders, and that. Victim of the Axe Fiends book. Mm-hmm. Um, those happened in Louisiana and Texas, but they happened back around 1911, around this same time yeah. that this was going on. But they're completely separate. As you and I were talking about before this even started, um, if this guy wanted to really kill everyone, he could have taken some lessons from these from other Billy. axe murders, from Billy the Man and the Axeman uh, from Louisiana and Texas, because they used the blunt side of the axe yep. and shattered everyone's skull. This guy was using the blade, which... Seems like it should do the trick, but for whatever reason, I guess if you hit somebody with the blade of an axe, it doesn't um, necessarily—it gets stuck. Yeah, it gets stuck. It doesn't necessarily crush someone's skull, and it's not necessarily fatal, right? um, Because most of these people died later. I mean, you know, a guy Joe Romano lives for a couple of days and then dies in the hospital. You know, it's just. I, feel like I don't it, know. He probably should have taken, you know, some lessons from somewhere else. It's but, like I feel like it's know. like
1: the way you describe this. Like, and this is me making light of like these terrible situations. But it's like your drunk buddy passed out early and then stumbles into the room and it's just like, oh man, like, <laughs> right? But right. there's blood coming out of his uh-huh. head. You know, like it just seems like uh, it's such a. Not, it's not comedic, but it's just like, what is going on here? Like, this yeah. guys, you're trying to kill people, or are you not? And right. it's bizarre. Um, but that's it's also interesting to me too. That like you are able to separate all these different axe murderers and you look at the MO and stuff like that, but then also...
0: Um, you got to y- look at the distance. you got to look at the places. you got to you got to remember we're dealing with something from a century ago. Sure. And you don't just drive and you don't get in your car yeah, and yeah, yeah. drive somewhere how do at you, that
1: time. How do you separate it, though, when it's like... Um, different people versus one person progressing and evolving and changing their methods or something. Well,
0: most of these guys I found in these cases don't really change their methods much. They don't learn Um, too much. At least, you know, we're, again, we're talking about a hundred years ago and we're talking about most of our information coming from newspaper reporting, sometimes from police reports, depending on the case. Yeah. Um, But you find that the, you know the mo matches almost identical, and they just don't really change. This huh. guy doesn't. I mean, throughout this episode, and, and as you'll find in the next episode, his methods don't really change. He does the same thing every time. He went through a window once, maybe, yeah, instead yeah, of door, instead but... of a door because yeah. maybe they didn't have the same type of door, right? You know, right. but he always takes one little thing. He uses the sharp side of an axe. Um, he's usually seen. He seems to want to be seen by right. his victims, yeah, uh, because unlike. Most of these other cases we've talked about in other other episodes and things I've written about most of the time no one ever sees this guy, Mm -hmm. but he leaves survivors and I'm not sure that's on purpose. I don't, yeah, but I it remember. happens. Yeah. But it does happen. But you know, well, let's 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 continue to walk through this, okay, and then sure. we'll
1: get to a couple of the other yep.
0: attacks. Okay.
1: So June twenty eighth, nineteen eighteen, my dad's birthday. Not the right year, but my dad's birthday. <laughs> well, I hope not. Good <laughs> yeah. Grief. <laughs> uh, so there's a baker, John uh, Zanka. Zanka. Yeah. Zanka. Zanka yeah. makes a delivery to Lewis and uh, Annie. Annie. Bessemer. Bessemer, but they but they don't answer. He notices a little panel carved
0: out in the door. Um, now, keep in mind, this wasn't like he saw the panel in the door and thought, oh, my God, the Axeman's attacking. Right. Remember, this first murder, they just assumed it was just yet another murder. Yes, a couple of the detectives said, well, <laughs> this is an murder. awful, lo- a lot like what happened in 1911. But, you know, where the Magios lives, a horrible neighborhood, yep. and they just assumed that it was a robbery until they discovered that, you know, everything had been left behind. Right. So, but it was a weird just, one. I know I hate to say this, but it's New Orleans and it was just another murder. Because there are so many. Because yeah. there were a lot at the time. Right. So, right. So this next one is really what started to, Peace, Set the stage again. for sure. multiple. So
1: murders. Lewis uh, stumbles out with blood dripping from his forehead. Uh, Zaka calls the police going against the wishes of Bessemer, which kind of seems which sketchy. Which is so weird. Yeah. Know, well, this
0: guy's just such an ass.
1: Yeah, well, they they <laughs> both are. But So the apartment's a bloody mess. Um, it appears that Annie was attacked on the porch and then drugged or carried into the bed just because of, like, drag marks and handprints and things like that. Neither of them can remember much. Uh, Bessemer starts talking, acting like a jerk, claims that he... Um,
0: How rich and successful yeah. he is. I mean, the whole thing just is, like what is your deal? I I know, right? You know, when they start talking about, he starts talking about how I'm so wealthy. I opened this store as a hobby and I'm like, oh, yeah, man. Like it's,
1: it's my side project. Yeah. Like,
0: the cops don't like him. Well, he's and,
1: talking you know, like it's... he just got hit in the fucking head. So maybe, yeah. maybe well, that's there what is that. it is. But yeah. So he claims he has some Italian grocer enemies, but the police don't really follow that up immediately. Um, Annie then, I guess they keep pushing and she recalls a, a mulatto man who asked for tobacco God. and then chased her to the back of the store and hit her with an ax. She's like
0: has like 12 stories. I, I know. Right. I mean, and there it, are even more stories that I included. Okay, here. okay. Yeah. It's, it's that bad.
1: So this is bullshit by the after, by the <laughs> afternoon, the police um, had Louis Obishon uh, in custody. His alibi is kind of weak, but so is Annie's story. Um, she eventually recants, and then by the weekend, the case had taken another bizarre turn. Annie had uh, started to insinuate that it might have been her husband who had attacked her, and worse, he might be a German spy. Yeah. Um, okay, how much do you want to dive into this? I know you uh, said not you a whole
0: lot because it was a load of crap. Okay. I mean, you know, this guy had stuff. He was he was a Polish Jew. He spoke. All these languages, which he legitimately did, maybe he was a spy, but he wasn't doing any spying. Apparently, there was no espionage you know, going on They found some this. letters and things in his in his apartment. So, but you got to remember, this was at a time period in American history when. Anyone of German... I'm okay, let's go back to our our, um, our St. Louis season, mm-hmm. and we talked about the limps, and we talked about all the prejudice against German-Americans uh, at the time. Sure. This is the same time period. So Germans were seen in, in with a lot of suspicion at the time, and because, you know, especially anyone who had any ties to Germany, like... You know the limps and the bushes and all those people did, and this this guy did too, um, only because he spoke German. I mean, he had these he spoke letters multiple and, languages. Yeah, though. he spoke a lot of languages, and he did admit to being a Jew from Poland. And uh, he spoke Russian, he spoke German, he spoke Yiddish, and so you know he was seen as a suspect. I mean, they called in. You know the the Department of Justice, who would right. later be the FBI, and they they don't know what to do with him because he's not breaking any laws. Sure, I mean he's he's a he's a jerk, and <laughs> yes, he's right. you know and you but know that's not a crime, and they don't they can't figure out why in the world this guy, if he's really as rich and as smart as he claims to be, why is he running this little grocery store? Yeah, and you know Esplanade Seems Ridge, nobody knows. I mean the I whole guess. thing's weird, but yeah. you know I think everything came into this because you know his wife was. A nut, and and to be honest with you, it turns out that it's there's a like I said, there's a lot more to this, yeah, yeah. and I just didn't want to get bogged down in this story because it had nothing to do with the Axeman, but it turned out that that's she really wasn't his wife. She no claimed shit. to be his wife, and he said that she was his wife, but he actually had another wife who lived in Cincinnati who was an invalid. This was just some chippy he'd picked up in Florida wow. and was taken around with him. Maybe, and maybe
1: you could do a bonus episode like God, about this it's story a mess. or something, because it's I mean, kind it's of fun. really a
0: mess, and she's a loon. And, yeah. you know, he's a jerk. She's a loon. And it, it just, it went completely off the rails. But, you know, the detectives were convinced that he had, they had been attacked by the actual Axeman. yeah, yeah. But their story just... I and mean, it just it just completely bogged down the case right. for the next, you know, several weeks until they could figure out what in the world was going on. Right. So, and it was a mess.
1: So okay, um, yes. Yeah. So so Superintendent Mooney is still convinced that the case is connected to the Maggio case. This case is going nowhere fast, but then on July seventh, Annie gets her memory back. Uh, she now said that she'd been awakened around dawn. By a man standing over a bed, she said uh, she told him to go away, but then he made strange gestures that she yeah, couldn't understand, yeah. and then hit her with an axe. Um, he sounded a lot like the Maggio's killer. What kind of gestures are we
0: talking? We don't Do we know. know. That's Just all strange. She said. I don't know if he was, you know, some kind of, I don't know, we could get into some deep conspiracy uh, here that he was yep. making Masonic signs or signs, oh, yeah. who knows, right. you know? Uh, But maybe whatever it was, maybe they meant something to him. But what's interesting, though, is that the tall, heavy set white man with dark hair would come up many, many more times. Um, And I think that's kind of how this, you know, all got. Well, that's that's why Superintendent Mooney became convinced, which which is really weird. This this whole thing is so backward in this case, because well, normally it's not the superintendent who's the one going around going, oh, we got a serial killer on our hands. You know, sure. They want to shut that up. It's usually detectives. And this time uh, it okay. was reversed. The detectives, you know, probably because it would have been more work to them or they would have lost the case I don't know this. The police force in New Orleans at the time was a lot like every other police force in the country. They're nothing like what we're yeah. familiar with. Sure. I mean, these were a, guy, a bunch of guys who, as we talked about before, usually police officers in the early 1900s were one step away from being criminals. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of like the, in the old West, Did most that change? marshals and well, the marshals <laughs> hey. and the deputies and the sheriffs and things were, you know, usually former outlaws yeah, yeah. who had decided to put on a star because it was a steady job. You want to keep a gun? Wyatt you Earp, you know, and yeah. his brothers, they all, you know, were on the other side of the law, at least part of their careers. And so, these these weren't a lot of guys known for their uh detective prowess sure. you know so these guys just didn't want to believe it was the same killer but superintendent Mooney was convinced that it was mm-hmm. and so were a lot of the higher ups in the department I mean we we're just getting to that right now but um what what's a superintendent in that like position rank, um, rank how's that he would be kind that, of the chief of police okay, uh, okay well i think at the time the superintendent was the top job so i guess he'd be the police commissioner okay slash chief uh police chief okay. i mean he was the top man in the department got it and he'd only and that's kind of an interesting story too but we'd have to Again, um, there's all this, I know, all this minutiae. I didn't want to get a whole other episode explaining who he was, but he, by the time the Magios were murdered, he'd only been on the job a few months. He'd taken over for a very corrupt uh, police superintendent before him in the job, and he was trying to make, you know, make his bones as far as this being this honest. Upstanding policeman And um, so he's doing his best He really is This is not a guy who You know we're not looking He wasn't covering anything up He was really I mean I I Use some of his quotes Because they're ridiculous But he was trying his best he, he really came with what he has. Yeah, he really was. Right.
1: Okay, so August 5th, Kate Gonzalez is uh, woken up by her neighbor screaming and some glass breaking. The neighbors were her sister, uh, Mary Schneider, and her, her husband, and her husband yeah. Edward, and their three children. They found Mary, who's nine months pregnant, sprawled out across the bed with pools of blood and some of her teeth missing. Yeah. Again, the motive did not appear to be robbery. The Police didn't necessarily link the crimes, but the press sure as fuck did. Yeah, oh, yeah, um, right away. And then Superintendent Moody was forced to say that he wasn't sure uh, if it had been the ax man who struck Mary, but that the, quote,
0: finding of the hatchet and disappearance of the ax is puzzling. Right. So it's the exact same motive as the other murders. Again... Um, when Edward came home from work who, you know, it's not like you, you know, somebody's going to call him on his cell phone right. at the Southern Pacific docks and say, Hey, I need you to come home. Your wife's been in an accident. Everything's crazy. We're just going to have to wait till he gets home. Uh, and so he walks in, he finds a police everywhere. Her, his sister-in-law and brother-in-law are there. Your and, wife's nine months pregnant yeah, exactly. or she's like, She's at the hospital uh, getting ready to give birth because of the shock. She got teeth missing. She'd been hacked in the face. Uh, but like and so Mondays. he goes through he goes through the house and finds that only a handful of do- six or seven dollars was missing and right underneath it he'd been they'd been saving money yeah 102 which was really good money in New Orleans of in course. 1918. I'd take 102 and it dollars was right sitting, now. Yeah, it was sitting <laughs> there in a box in plain sight and the whoever the killer was didn't bother with it. Yeah, only took the only took the souvenir. Yeah, it's so but so, then found that his axe was missing from the backyard shed. This time the killer didn't leave it behind, but mm-hmm. he did leave a hatchet in the yard uh, but took the axe with him. Oh, which, okay, okay, yeah. so that's different. So yeah, they they found a hatchet in the yard but they don't know what I'm not sure they knew which weapon he'd used, uh-huh. but I think it was later determined that he hit her with the axe but he may have picked up both. It's interesting. Uh, at, at one time. I feel like he, he
1: probably just tossed the axe somewhere and they just never found
0: it, right? Probably. Yeah, yeah. most likely. That's what yeah, I would imagine. Likely.
1: So Mooney didn't tell the press uh, that in December 1917, six months before the Maggio attack, sleeping Italian grocer right. named Alfina uh, and had been attacked by a hatchet-wielding man, as we kind of alluded to earlier. Mary ends up surviving and gives birth. In um, this quote, in the meantime, the police investigation was a mess. Detectives told reporters that they believed all the attacks were separate, while the chief and other police officials believed they were hunting a serial axe murderer. There's an indication as to how disorder, or this is an indication as to how disordered and disorganized the investigation was to become, and likely a good reason as to why the murders and attacks were never
0: solved. Same problem we've run into with yep. other cases we've talked about. And I found it interesting that Mooney uh, immediately picked up and used the name the Axe Man. Yeah. Um, the reason he, I, I believe, this is my belief, mm-hmm. is that the reason he did this is because just a few years before the Axe Man that I wrote about in Victims of the Axe Fiend. Yep. Um, In Louisiana and in Texas was referred to in every newspaper report. And there are tons of them. I've got a file that's about four inches thick of all these newspaper articles about that axe man. And so... You know, it was a terminology that people really didn't use back then, but somebody used it for that guy. And then, you know, and Billy, but that was completely far away. Right. You know, there's not I, I don't think that probably most people knew anything about those Midwest murders at the time. Yeah. Uh, Velisca and all that Or very little. I and mean, it did make you? the newspapers, but, yeah, you know, locally, this this killer from you know, a few years before, was known all over Louisiana and Texas. I mean, it, none of it was that far from New Orleans. So he picked up the name The Axeman and started using it. And mm-hmm. that's that's where I think this killer got his name, was from the other Axeman. Not sure. the same person. Interesting. Uh, but I, I know he—I'm I'm positive, I mean, in my theory, that's yeah. where he got the name.
1: Well, something so. we were talking about earlier that I kind of wanted to revisit, and I don't know what you would know about this, but do— like just because of the way my brain works and the fact that I'm not a serial killer, <laughs> <That's> of course. <laughs> Plus, what a serial killer is. yeah. Yes. Um, Good do, to know. Do serial killers like? Is it not a thing to learn and adapt and grow your kind of? Oh, I, uh, stuff? yeah. I
0: think. Um, I think that which which is the reason why these these three murders that we or these three attacks that mm-hmm. we've talked about uh, because we did have survivors in a couple of them. These three attacks we've talked about were very similar, and yet. You Know he left no clues behind. This isn't the first time he'd done it, right? Um, normally, you, you when you have your first murder, usually that's when things are a little sloppy and they sure. fine tune. That these being so close to the same mo in each one mm-hmm. leads me to believe that he was involved in those 19 and for whatever reason Took was break. missing for a few years, yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, what's that, uh, that Ted Bundy quote where he's like.
1: The first time you do it, like your hands are shaking, and like by the twentieth time, like you forget where you put the knife or the wrench yeah. or whatever, <laughs> yeah, you know. Probably. Yeah, so it's yeah. just like yeah, it's just like oh, second yeah, nature. yeah, look at
0: look at Gacy, you know. I mean, he got away with it for so that long. The crawl space, the man. crawl space. Had to right. smell so and, bad. Yeah. And then he finally realized when he had, ran out of room in the crawl space, he started dumping him in the river. And that's when he got caught. And that's so, when you get
1: caught. Yeah. It's how it always happens. Uh, that's, why I don't, <laughs> that's why I don't trust clowns. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, cow. so August 10th, uh, Pauline and Mary Bruno were awakened by strange noises in the next bedroom. They, uh, they see a large man at the foot of the bed. They scream.
0: He but runs. It, it, also interesting yep. in yeah, this yeah. is that this is the third attack Mm-hmm. that is connected to Italian grocers. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, you had the Maggios, who were Italian grocers. You had the Bessemer case, who um, had enemies that were Italian grocers, um, The the Schneiders, Nothing. We're just completely yeah. out of it. But the, in this case, hmm. uh, the girl's mother ran a grocery store, and they were Italians. Do you think is that a coincidence? Do you think it's a thread? No, I think there's. I line? think it's a running thread because the 1911 uh, attacks were mostly against Italian grocers too. So hmm. we'll talk more about that in the next okay, episode okay. because that that does something. That is something that sort of runs as a theme, and where this case gets messy. Um, because of the other attacks and things so we'll, we'll talk about it next time but I just want to point that out to right. keep an eye out for
1: okay it. yeah no that's definitely interesting um, so they scream he runs Pauline said he disappeared quote as if he had wings and so I wrote down was this the mothman yeah but, right <laughs> um, so their uncle Joseph Romano ends up stumbling in obviously hitting the head with an axe and requests an ambulance uh, he died two days later at charity hospital and that's why I wrote down I said I'm sorry start- I'm starting to see why Billy the axe man used the blunt side of the axe first because yeah. so many people keep surviving yeah keep surviving yeah. and um so still robbery doesn't appear to be the motive and then quote the public wasn't reassured they wondered who was next because uh, the cops are confident but the public wasn't reassured the, who wondered who was next as one newspaper put it
0: well and- i like the part when you know he Super, Superintendent Mooney called him an axe wielding degenerate. Yes. I like that. But then he says, Take this as gospel. We're gonna get him. I'm doing everything in my power to right. run down this murderous maniac. Yes. And everybody's like, Yeah, whatever. Yeah, we got <laughs> yeah. you. So a
1: literal rain of terror swept through many quarters in New Orleans. Um in some Italian household member members of the family divide into the night and regular watches and stand guard over their sleeping kin, armed with buckshot loaded shotguns. So, now, like that's how serious shit, got. Right,
0: but but take that but don't miss the part where even the newspaper at the time said in Italian households uh-huh. because um, they were under the impression. I mean, as this panic started, because they're at again, three of the attacks had been against Italians. Yeah, they were or at least connected to Italians. They were under the impression that just like the what they believed were the black hand and and there were black hand terrorist attacks as well mixed in in 1911 with these axe attacks they were not the same thing yeah um we've talked about the black hand i know we yeah, talked yeah, about we it did. before A couple in, in earlier episodes and you know, this was an extortion kind of terrorism that was going on with Italians, mm-hmm. and so Italians were were convinced that the Black Hand was operating again. Yeah, and that's why they were so scared because they believed this um, whoever this uh, this killer was 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 carrying out attacks for the Mafia again, um, as the you know as I said, the police incorrectly called it. But there really was a Mafia in New Orleans at the time. Sure. In fact, the uh, Sicilian Mafia entered the United States through New Orleans. I don't know if you knew that. No, you you told me that. Did I tell you about that? because I always assume it was like New York. Yeah, everybody does. Uh, But they actually came through New Orleans and then spread up to New York and things. And then, of course, more people, once they were up in the New York area, then people were coming through Ellis Island. But it was a lot easier to get in through New Orleans at the time. I can imagine, Yeah. yeah. And so that's why in the late 1800s, there were so many Italians in the French Quarter, I mean, they just kind of literally taken it over, which, you know, infuriated the you know the reformers. And of things, course, because yeah. You know, as far as they were concerned, the Italians were as bad as the African Americans. They didn't want any of them around, right? You know, dirty Italians. You know, and. Um, the other thing to remember is that New Orleans, in addition to being founded by the French and by the Creole, um, it was also largely founded by the Irish. Mm-hmm. You yeah. don't like Italians, yeah? So uh, okay. it was—you got a big mess on your hands. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of history there that we couldn't—we I mean, can't cover every single thing in this podcast. No. But there's a lot of history there and a lot of prejudice against different people in different groups but so you have some books now we're, i do but now we're talking about italians yep. and so that's that's an important part of this story so i just sure. want to reiterate that okay so. no no no, that's that's good to know i love the context
1: and so some believed him to be supernatural because of the wings statement right. uh right. So quote strangely it would be the axe man himself who would soon claim to be a supernatural being an actual demon from the hottest hell that's a quote who, who, dem- who demanded one thing in return uh, from the mortals of new orleans in exchange for sparing their lives jazz music yeah
0: yeah mm, and that's, that's why i love this story I so know. much it's just it's so ridiculous and it gets even more ridiculous before it's over yeah i mean there's a lot more blood to come but there's Hell also yeah. jazz music to yeah, come yeah well, yeah and and it's just crazy um I've got, you know, I've got some of the, oh, no, no, we're going yeah, to wait. I'm going to, I don't want to spoil it. I'm going to talk to, we will talk okay. about it in the next episode. And yes. So
1: we're going to pick up on the jazz music in the next we episode will. and the season finale of Haunted yep, New Orleans. Finale, yep. Awesome. All right. Well, it's now time for our ghost segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre or jazz, email or us at AmericanHuntingsPodcast. I'm not sure I
0: can answer it, but we could try. At
1: gmail.com. <laughs> okay. This first one comes to us from Eric, and it says, Hello. I wanted to start off by saying I love the podcast, and if it weren't for the pandemic, I would have bought tickets and, uh, to come to attend the conference for the yeah. very first time this yeah. year. I also wanted to ask Troy for his opinion on the Jenny Wade house in Gettysburg. When I was a kid, my family and I went to visit the battlefield in town many times, as my father, brother, and I are American Civil War buffs. Um, during our first trip there in 2004, we went on a ghost tour and visited the previously mentioned house. Even though I was 10 at the time, I still I, I was still remarkably unimpressed, especially in the <laughs> guy guide asked me to, to feel an apparent cold oh, God, spot I that was nothing that. more than an AC coming through a vent. Have you heard any credible evidence of a haunting at this location? Thank you. Uh, again, love the podcast. What do you think about this house?
0: I, I've heard some stories. For those of you who don't know, because uh, we really haven't done much on uh, the Civil War no, in this really. podcast. But uh, Jenny Wade was the only civilian killed during the Battle of Gettysburg. Okay. Uh, She was, yeah, she was actually standing behind a door in her home, and there was fighting that went on within the city, and a stray shot, some say it was a sharpshooter, but... Um, it, no one really were knows. there. Sharpshooters back then. Yeah, there were. When oh, your yeah, bullets go this way, no, and that way? No, absolutely. There were because really? there were a lot of guys who really had a handle on how those guns worked. Mm-hmm. Um, Didn't and they by worked the Civil War, well? well, you're talking about muskets. And yeah, things. yeah, that's what um, i mean, It wasn't until they started to ridge the barrels and the bullets mm-hmm. that they got more accuracy. But there were a lot of guys who dated even back to uh, the Revolutionary War, or the French and Indian War. There were, there were, there were. Sharpshooters with those, like the guys with the Kentucky rifles, you know, the kind of the frontiersmen that would show up, like last of the Mohicans. Kind okay, of thing. yeah, yeah. Um, they knew what they were doing. And those, if you've ever seen a Kentucky rifle, they're really long. Uh, yeah. So the longer the barrel, the more accuracy sure. you had with those type of guns. But yeah. by the time the Civil War came around, there were, there were already some repeating rifles and things. And there were rifles that were used for sharpshooters. Okay, okay. Um, the Farnsworth right. House. In Gettysburg is a place that there were supposed to have been, the story goes anyway, um, that there were a couple of Confederate sharpshooters up in the garret or the attic of the Farnsworth house. But if you look at the back of the building, it's still covered in chips and marks and bullet holes where people were trying to take out these sharpshooters yeah, yeah. anyway. Right. Uh, and some people say that that's how Jenny Wade got shot but from the Farnsworth house, but I don't know if that's true. What we do know is that a bullet did pass through the door and it hit her and she died. Um so she did die in the house and that's become kind of a historic spot because she is the only civilian. Yeah. Um as far as it being haunted, I've been there several times. Um just because I've never experienced any doesn't mean it's not haunted. Of course. Um I, I've heard some stories here and there. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I really don't. I I can't say firsthand, but I'm a little skeptical on a lot of that stuff. And when you've got someone bringing you in and telling you, "Ooh, feel this cold spot," and it's the air conditioner, I've been on those tours. I've seen them. You know, I've been, you know, on the tour in Key West where they want you to come and bring your cheap EMF meter around Robert the doll, Uh and 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 it goes and it it goes off. Ooh, yeah, because there's wires everywhere. I mean, it's you know that's Uh, why it goes off. Love Robert. Uh, So, but I mean, it's. for people on a tour but as far as legitimacy goes uh you'd have to I my suggestion would be to check out something from like mark nesbitt um who is the the ghost of gettysburg guy okay i mean if you're if you're gonna be in gettysburg you you gotta take mark's tour okay uh, because that's the best one there and they're not gonna fill you up with a bunch of crap um they're they're a legit tour and um that's what i would recommend to people so i Got i it. wish i could say Positively, one way or the other, but I yeah. can't. But I would look and see what Mark has to say about it. Okay, so. seems like it'd be a good candidate for something. But yeah, yeah, I mean it does. Yeah, sometimes but, they hit or miss. Know, but when you when when you've got people who have to. Point you out know, yeah. When you got people, you have to who have to point out fake stuff. Yeah. It, it does make you a little skeptical.
1: It's like a tour we were on when people were throwing rocks and things. Uh, and yeah, we just, yeah, just yeah exactly. Oh, up. did you hear
0: that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we <laughs> yep, sure
1: did. Yep, yeah, I heard it. Okay, yeah. moving on So this. Uh, the last one's from Jessica. Okay, Troy. So this says, I was wondering if cannibalism causes gastrointestinal problems. Some fiction that I've read suggests it's the case. I understand you're not experts on the subject. Oh, but actually,
0: I'd, you'd be surprised. But I'd
1: really <laughs> like to write a short story about Hannibal Lecter's
0: plumber. Totally serious about that. Any input you have would be appreciated. Okay. What well, do you know about cannibalism? Um, as far as the meat, or as they call it, the long pig, oh, God. Uh, goes with cannibals, it's not usually a stomach issue that you come up with. Okay. It normally affects your brain. Um, if okay. you are a long-term cannibal, because of some of the things that is are involved with eating human flesh, it can cause brain damage over an extended period of time. Why is that? Uh, I don't know. I, I'd have to... I mean, I know... I've read an article that that went into sure. more detail but a little more scientific than i'm right you know, comfortable okay. <laughs> sure. with sure uh, but it can cause brain damage but it doesn't cause stomach upset any more than any other kind of meat does. interesting i mean if that's your solid you know if that's all you eat and let's world say testing. if you're if you're cooking up something with some greens mm-hmm. or some vegetables or something to go you know like a, yeah. some fava beans and a nice chianti yeah, yeah, yeah to go with your human kidney with your person uh you're i'm sure that it's just like Eating any other kind of meat. But over time, if that's your soul, I mean, if you ate nothing but meat, mm-hmm. um, you'd have a lot of stomach well, the issues. the carnivore diet right. kind of thing. Right. You'd have some stomach issues and you'd have very bad breath. I wonder, uh, I wonder so what it is a about. Bad idea. But it people. does, it can affect your brain over time. That has been one of those things yeah. that they've noticed not only with um, people who, you know, that was their culture, mm-hmm. you know, 50 years ago. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. In some islands, in some parts of the South Pacific, sure. I mean, cannibalism is still a thing. And um, they've noticed that it, an ongoing, you know, passed down through generations problem, brain problem. Yeah. Um, the same thing has come up with, um, well, I mean, unfortunately, cannibalism exists. Yeah. And people still do it. Normally, it's, um, you know, serial killers and that kind of thing. But right. yes, it can cause brain damage. But... Usually not stomach issues. What
1: was that? The movie, I think The Road, where they were
0: shaking because they were eating. Right, people? exactly. I mean, they, it's they it's call, a, neuro, a neurological thing. Okay, they called and out what it was. Yeah, but that's what, yeah, that's a perfect example. Yeah. But that's what will happen to you. It will it'll cause nerve and brain damage. Okay, yeah. So there's your answer. There's your so answer. Yeah. I actually actually did know something about that. That's true. I would eat a person. Okay, so let's go. Well, on only to... if you, you know, well the way I look at it is, if, <laughs> it's let's me or say, them. you know, we've seen if you saw the movie alive about the plane crash in and the Andes mountains yeah. or the Donner party or yeah. whatever, you know, Donny party's Donner party is a The Donner party thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm actually I'm working I'm I'm, of course I'm you in are. the research part of doing a That's book a about up that story. because there are hauntings. But the thing about it is is that there was some cannibalism that was going on at the camp. Uh-huh. Um, that was cannibalism for fun. Yes, yes. Um, and that's where things were really messed up. But the, the 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 attempted rescue party, the people who tried to go on over the mountains, mm-hmm. uh, were actually really heroic. They called themselves the Forlorn Hope. Okay. And they were trying to get across the mountains to to get. A rescue party to come back and save everyone they eventually did have to resort to cannibalism not because they wanted to but they had to right and that's a whole different animal yeah so to speak um i uh, <laughs> i i've always felt <clears> that <throat> if that's what it came down to um if i if i dropped on the trail feel free to eat, me. eat me what yeah. do i care yeah exactly. i'm not gonna care i'm dead of course so yeah i i i would offer that up if i died yeah uh but it, you know Only if I die. Please don't murder me. Right. Just so you can, you know, eat me. Right. But yeah,
1: so. No, okay. So anyway, uh, I hope that helps with your. Book about Hannibal Lecter's plumber. We could
0: do a whole episode on cannibalism. <laughs> actually, you know, like the sailors and yeah. the custom of the sea, and yeah, all that why not stuff? So. we could. Um, so
1: thanks. But for, we're not going to. No, thank, thanks, maybe a bonus episode. <laughs> but, thanks for writing in, Gmail.com. We have a couple of Patreon shout-outs that I wanted to toss out there. So thank you so much to Nicole, Bindi, and Sarah for supporting the show. It really helps us not sound terrible and you know make
0: quality <laughs> products and stuff. And I just I really yeah, you really know everybody a couple that couple episodes. Ago when we had all those problems, people were thinking, "Wait a minute, didn't I? I know. <laughs> Aren't I a Patreon person? What's going uh, on there?" That so. nothing has given me as much anxiety as that, that episode. episode did. I know well and. It was we, a, we got terrible. through it. We it wasn't it. as bad as you made it sound. You told me how horrible it was, and then I listened to it, and I thought, well, it's bad, okay, but well, it's not unlistenable. Do you
1: want to hear something funny, though? So <laughs> I called so call Troy in the morning. I'm in Denver, and I called Troy, and I was like, hey, this sounds terrible. I don't know what to do. And he's like, do what you got to do, man. Then later I went and I played with the audio a little bit. What I did was I split the second half of our conversation I split it and I moved the tracks a little bit so that way the echo was erased. <laughs> oh, cool. And it kind of lined up a little bit more. So oh, and when I when I called you the first time, it initially sounded even worse. Oh, wow. And wow. I was like, oh, I can't put this out there. It's going to sound so bad. But shit happens. It's a fucking pandemic. And everybody was really cool about it. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I knew us, everybody would. Nobody be. gave us yeah. any problems. Everybody's,
0: you know, it's like we were talking about at the very beginning. I know. You know, people right. understand. You got to roll with the punches. You know, our our weird folks are much more adaptable than most people are. Yes. We have a good audience. We do well, and it's not—I mean, all of them. You know, the people doing our live streams that are buying the books and stuff—they get it. I yep. mean, they're they're adaptable to weird stuff. And, we and appreciate weird it. things happening. So yes, the weird people are the best. The weird people are the best. Yeah. That's all I got. All right. Well, let's wrap it up then. All right. So. Go ahead. No, I'm. I'm just gonna let You're you done? read it. You're I'm just not fucking gonna, done. I'm not gonna. I'm not. You know, I. I. I'm just gonna let you go. Well,
1: okay. So I'm gonna be Troy. Well, thanks for listening and check us out on social media <laughs> and <laughs> no Oh, you wanted me to do iTunes. that? Yeah. Oh, I could have done All that. Oh, that. Guess, yeah. Check so. us out. Okay. Here's yeah. my new thing. I think people. I want to focus on like. One or two calls to action, so like check us out on Patreon. That's great, and that really helps us out. But also the reviews. If you leave a funny enough and short enough review, I will read it on the show. There's some of them that are so nice, but they're so long. I am Like I can't. I know. I can't yeah, well, do this. All we're doing is reading a long review, right? Though, so. so like, yeah. So leave us. A we fun, love reading them. I do. And oh, oh but we can't I, always use them on the Troy show. Troy and I text each other about yeah. all, like every review, pretty much. Like, yeah. oh, did you see the good did you stuff. See this like, one. See this dickhead come through. Yeah. like yeah, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. one of those things. So okay, all right. Well, this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and was produced and edited by me Cody Beck and I'm already halfway
0: done I put, yeah and I already put my iPad away I'm yeah, not even reading right it, so in each bi-weekly episode
1: along. we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination you and try, the truth left this Troy out, to actually. reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales and unexplained events you can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you find your favorite shows and at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we have show notes more info about uh, more info about the episodes. And I'm not even interrupting you. you can't Ameri- read it. I can't read from American <laughs> Hauntings because American Hauntings isn't just a podcast. It's jokes and arguing and books and tours, events, and more. <laughs> Me interrupting more. you. And our uh, main website is AmericanHauntings.net. And if you want even more from us, you can become a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, discounts, stickers, cool shit in the mail, and more. Thanks to our supporters. We've upgraded our equipment for the show, and we've continued to Oh, and hey, you. we do
0: have, by the time everybody what hears you got? this, They'll have postcards in the mail. New oh postcards hell Postcards yeah. going out. There. Okay. We're also setting up a new cocktail hour, so we try to do that. So the Zoom thing. The Zoom cocktail nice. hour. Nice. So we'll have that coming up pretty quick. If if not hell by yeah. the time this is aired, um, then soon after. So, it's nice to have so a, keep an eye out It's
1: nice that. to have a reason to drink. Okay, we can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future. Take a minute and check it out. We think you like what you find. I always find like it when I Patreon. interrupted and you and you
0: say, what do you American got? And just stop. Yes,
1: be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes. I just want to tell us what you really think of us or Troy interrupted me. We're reachable via email on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Carrier Pigeon.
0: We got, you know, I keep, well, I keep forgetting to put telegram on there, well, and, but we just I want a new one though. I know we need something else. Um, Zoom apparently. Cause that's the a new, Zoom <laughs> Or
1: by Zoom. <laughs> Until next time. Goodbye. So long. See you later. Bye. Uh, cool. Another one in the
0: books. We're going to do the other one next week. Hi Lisa.